0: Praise the Lord. Glad you're here. We're leaking. We're leaking more than just kids. That's okay, they'll come back. I want to thank those of you that uh, filled out our survey about where you are in Lloyd Minster, what you're doing, how God is using you to touch your area. Lloyd Minster, Macklin, Provost, Onion Lake, wherever you are, uh, we're so happy that you're there. And it's encouraging. And I would, i give you the full results right now, but we don't have the full resor- results because like a third of you filled it out. And the other two-thirds need to step up <laughs> and fill that survey out. I'm already so excited about what I read, though. Can I just tell you, I'm pumped. I am pumped. Because as I've been reading... Um, some of you have just, just simply said, "This is where I am, this is what I'm doing." And some of you have, have, have said that, and then you've given a testimony, and some of you are doing things I didn't know you were doing, and it's exciting, because God is filling our region. And we know that we live in Lloyd Minster some of us, some of you don't. But Lloydminster is never just a city, is it? It's a region. It's an area. Anybody that's worked in the service industry or retail knows this, that Lloyd never treated just like a 33,000-person city. It is a whole region. And it's affecting Canada. It's affecting Alberta and Saskatchewan. And God's presence, God's kingdom, God's um, absolute rule and reign is meant to be demonstrated with his church. We believe that, don't we? We meekly believe that. We probably need to believe it more than you just believed it right now. I don't know if you just Yes, brother, that's 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 a very quiet thought. Let me meditate on that. No, we do believe that, don't we? If we have to get Siri to amen louder than you, we will do that. (laughs) Little inside joke from last week. Praise the Lord. So we're gonna we're gonna keep that survey up. And if you're part of this body even if you've only been part of it for a little while, we'd love for you to go to the wordchurch.ca, click on survey and fill it out. You can do it on your phone. You can do it on your computer. If it didn't work on your phone, reload the page, try again, it'll work that time because that's what happened to me. But I want you to be able to uh, let us know because this is how we're gonna pray together. This is how we're going to strategically see where God has placed us. And we do need to be aware, right? Be strategic about where God has placed us and and why he's placed us where he's placed us. As we said last week, Jesus said that you are to shine your light and not hide it under a basket because God has put us on a lampstand so that that light would give light to all who are in the house. So the question you've got to ask yourself is, what's the house I'm reaching? Is it my literal house? Because some of you are the, the sole believers in your family. And so for you, your house is your family. Some of you, it's the place you go to work. Some of you, it's the place you go to school. Some of you are retired, but you know what encouraged me about some of those results we got back from the survey is how many of you are retired and shaking the world for the kingdom of God? Because retired from a career or a job does not mean retired from ministry. And so it's exciting and encouraging. I see prayer warriors on there. I see people that are going out of their way to find where the lost are and seek them out and save them. You know, this is exciting. Just like we talked about last week where Jesus came through Jericho. He was passing through Jericho. He was not going to Jericho. He was passing through Jericho. In that city, Zacchaeus on the tree, all of a sudden Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I got to come to your house. And then when he does, and Zacchaeus repents and says, I'll repay four times what I've stolen. He was a sinful man. He was a a man that nobody really liked. He was a traitor to to his own people. And yet, he says, I'll pay pay it back. I'm sorry. I've turned around. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this man's house, for he too is a son of Abraham. That's an amazing thought. Salvation comes to people. And like we talked about last week, we talk about people coming to salvation, right? And praise the Lord for that, but I believe that the salvation of the Lord finds people and comes to them. We are that vessel of salvation. You know, we are the ones, this is what the Apostle Paul said, he said in Romans, that that now is the day of salvation, so because now is the day of salvation, we've got a word to speak, because how will they believe if they've not heard, Right? How will they hear if there's not a preacher? How will he preach if he hasn't been sent? So somebody's got to go out there and say, I'm sent into this area. I wonder if you consider your current situation, your current job, your current social uh, environment, your current family situation. I wonder if you consider that you are a missionary sent to that field. Because you wouldn't just go overseas as a missionary and just say, well, I hope at some point something happens. You'd be there on purpose with a mission, right? You're a missionary wherever God has sent you. Absolutely, we are. We're not just believers, we're disciples. Thank God we're believers, right? You know, the Bible says in the book of Acts, when when that first great, when that first great message was preached on the day of Pentecost, and I don't know if you know, but today is Pentecost Sunday. This is happy birthday to the church. Somebody can do the math at how many, how many years old it is, but it's getting near 2,000. And on the day of Pentecost, a great sermon was preached. Now, there are a couple of different points to that because they all were in the upper room together. Believers were gathered together. The Holy Spirit filled the room Filled the place they were gathering. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They all began to speak in other tongues. And then they took the meeting out of the building and into the street. Yeah. And the Bible doesn't say that a wind blew, blew through. It said a sound like a mighty rushing wind yes. came. They heard a sound from heaven. And then when they went out in the streets, the crowd heard a sound and gathered. So they had to hear what God was saying, and when they went out in the streets, they began to say something that the world heard. The point of a Sunday morning service like this is, number one, to worship God, right? Number one, it's to worship God. It's for us to lift our voices together. It's for us to to gather to to worship through song, to gather to worship through fellowship, to gather to worship through uh, receiving his word. And then, of course, another reason is for us to encourage one another. But then I believe another reason, the Bible says it's to be equipped, to be sent out. And so we're being equipped for the work of ministry. I think on Sunday mornings like this, you're supposed to hear a word from the Lord. And when you hear a word from the Lord, it starts in the building. It starts when the believers are gathered. We hear what the Lord is saying to the church, to the churches, and we take it out there. Because the world is not going to hear this without us going out there and being channels and amplifiers of the word of God. They heard a sound from heaven, but the people of Jerusalem heard a sound from men and women. They heard the sound from heaven through the mouths of men and women. They heard men and women speaking in in their own languages. These men and women were speaking in a heavenly tongue, but everybody heard it in their own language. What did they hear? What did they hear? They heard them praising and glorifying God for what he'd done. You know, it's interesting. They didn't hear... 10 points of theology. They didn't hear a lecture on uh, Jesus in the Old Testament from Moses up uh, uh, up until the resurrection. That came later. But the first thing they heard, the first thing they heard was people glorifying God and praising him for his mighty deeds. There's a power to telling people what God has done. Even before they understand how he did it or why he did it, the most important thing is that they understand he did do it. You are the greatest channel of that. I want us to turn back to Ephesians just as a reference point. And we read this last week and we'll read it again. It's time for the church to be strategic. It's time for us to be intentional. For us not to just hope that something will happen. But believe that God has already said things that it will happen. And He's waiting for people to step out and believe it. Step out and do it. Step out and engage. It says in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things, everything, spiritual, natural, every single thing above the earth, on the earth, and below the earth. He put all things under his feet, in subjection, under his feet, and gave him, gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And that's once again where we're going to leap off from this week. That thought that the church is the fullness of Christ. The church is the fullness of Christ. Who is the church? We're the church. We are the fullness of Christ. And we are the fullness of Christ who desires and will fill all things and be in all things. So Christ's method, God's method of filling the world with his presence, of filling the world with his kingdom, is not to use angels, even though angels will be used. Is not to uh, simply just kind of do a smoke show and, and get it all done himself. Of His method of filling the city, of filling the region, of filling the nation, of filling the planet with his presence is to send his body into every nook, crack, and crevice and be the church, be the body of Christ. We're not just friends of Christ, right? We're not just followers of Christ, even though we are. We are followers and we are friends of God, that's, that's right. We're not just disciples, even though we are. Here it's it's even more than that. We are Christ Himself. It's a dramatic thought. Because we think, well, well, I'm not perfect. Jesus is perfect. I'm not perfect. And yet, what does the scripture say? It says, lay aside all these deeds of the flesh and put on Christ. Put on Christ. We are meant to be Christ in these areas. We're meant to bring his presence. We're meant to bring his anointing. And, and one of the, uh, you know, one of the best ways to think about being a Christian is to think of what it means to be anointed. Right? Because that's really where the word Christian derives from. It's from Christ, which is the anointed one, his anointing. And if we're Christians... We are not only followers of Jesus, but to be a follower of Jesus, you had to be empowered because it's like saying, follow me as I walk on the water. If you can't walk on the water, you can't follow me. Jesus didn't just say to his disciples, watch this. It's a cool trick. Watch it, guys. He took them with him. He told them to observe. Observe what I'm doing. I'm casting out evil spirits. I'm healing the lame. I'm cleansing the lepers. I'm raising the dead. And then... When they had learned by watching and learned by hearing and they were cleaned by his word, the Bible says. Jesus said, you've been cleaned because the words I spoke to you. Then he sent them out and they did the things they saw. Mm -hmm. That's what a disciple is. If you want to be an audience member, you can be an audience member. But if you want to be a disciple, a disciple doesn't just hear, a disciple does. A disciple follows the master and does what the master does. Right? So he sent us out I was so encouraged to read as we were, I was just getting to see some of these survey results come in. And I was so encouraged to see the areas where Jesus works in Lloydminster. Jesus has a lot of jobs in Lloydminster. He's got a lot of diverse types of jobs. He's got a lot of diverse types of situations. Apparently, Jesus works in the hospital. Apparently, Jesus works in the fast food places. Jesus works in the oil field. Jesus is amongst the retired people. Jesus is in prayer meetings. Jesus is taking care of kids in the home. Jesus is doing all of these things that we sometimes think, well, Jesus does these things. He stays here. He does that. But he sent his body into these places so that light would be spread throughout the house, that his presence would be known, that the sound we hear would be the sound the world hears through our mouths. The church is his body. The fullness of him who fills all and is in all. I'm stuck on that phrase, the fullness of him. Because I think as much as we like to think of it, um, we we still kind of think that we're not the full deal yet. Right? Like we're kind of the knockoff version. A lot of people think of themselves that way. You know, everything will change when Jesus is physically here. And, and, and that's true, but not for the reasons you think it is. Because you won't be any more anointed when Jesus is physically here. If that were the case, he would not have said, it's good for you if I go away. Right. The best thing for you is if I go away. Because if I go away and I go to the Father, I'm going to send my spirit to you and you're going to have me all the time. Preacher. Preacher. Have you ever considered that the church is not missing something. We shouldn't be missing something. We are the fullness of him. If something is full, is there anything left? That's right, We're the fullness of him yeah. who fills all and is in all. Yeah. It's a dramatic thought. And I want you to see something in the book of Titus. turn with me and if you need to look in your table of contents no one's judging you except your neighbor and they're only judging you in the light nice churchy way that we judge I'm joking about that by the way we don't have a churchy way to judge at least we shouldn't Titus 2 Verse 9, and, and we've talked about this before, but it's a touchy subject. I get uncomfortable anytime I look through the New Testament and see Paul talking to slaves because I'm not real comfortable with slavery. And if I were very com- comfortable with slavery, you might not want me to be pastor here, right? <laughs> you might think I need to go somewhere and maybe get reeducated. But here's a thought. In the Roman Empire... There was a permanent slave class. Now, whether you might think of them as slaves, you might just think of them as the working class. They were working for people, but they didn't really have a choice. They lived with them, they ate with them, maybe in their own quarters. And um, I'm convinced that is a great thing, it is a God thing that that went away. But in that empire at that time, that's the way society was set up. The church was the most radical in terms of slavery. The church was the most radical force in society when it came to slavery because the church was the place where straight up they said, in fact, Paul said this, and you can read it multiple times he said this, in Christ, there is no slave or free person. So in Christ, I'm not allowed to treat somebody different because of the class they came from. So you might come to church, we've talked about this, but you might come to church as a rich person, come to church and a slave might be on top of you as far as authority, might be correcting you, might be disciplining you, you might have a pastor who was a slave. So it turned everything upside down. And the question was, does our freedom in Christ give us the right and the impetus to host a slave rebellion? Do we overthrow our Roman masters and say, finally, we're free? You could do that. Spartacus did that, but he didn't do it because he loved Jesus. And it didn't end well. And it all goes back to what Jesus said. He said, uh, in fact, he called us all to be slaves of all and servants of all. But Jesus said, you're looking for a kingdom that's on this earth, but I'm offering you a different type of kingdom. Had the church engaged in a slave rebellion, they would have gotten one thing accomplished but missed the other thing. Their goal... And, and Paul turned this around and said, we're all going to be slaves here. And then he said to the slaves in one place, he says, if you work as unto the Lord, then the Lord's your boss. And even though you have a boss who doesn't pay you, the Lord will repay you. So he just said, all of a sudden, you've got a wage. You've got a, you're, you're working for, for, for the big man upstairs and he's going to pay and he's going to make sure you're treated right. So thankfully, as the gospel spread, as the gospel took hold, slavery in the Roman Empire began to fade and diminish, and it never quite went away until the Roman Empire collapsed. And unfortunately, slavery still was a part of human existence up until recent years. And it's it's a black mark, it's a shame for all of us that it lasted as long as it did, but thank God, thank God, it's mostly been eradicated, there's still work to be done, we know that. But look at what it says here. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. So, all right, that doesn't seem very good, right? I mean, because you just said that there's no slaves in Christ. We're all free. So why do, I have to, why do I have to listen to what that guy says? He's not even a believer. I mean, why do I have to listen to what this guy says? You said I'm free. Why do I have to do this? And the point is, is that he's saying, you're an instrument wherever you are of the kingdom of God. And when we read this, maybe, maybe see yourself in this verse. You say, well, I'm not a slave. Well, no, you're not. But can you see yourselves in this verse as far as where you go to work and what you do every day? That you have a boss over you? You got somebody that's Might not be a great representation of the love of Jesus. Might not be a great representation of intelligence. Might not be a great representation of manners. You got somebody over you that doesn't know how valuable you are. And yet you go to work because God put you there. And then he says this, be subject to their masters and everything. Be well-pleasing. Don't be argumentative. Don't be pilfering. Like, don't sneak a little here and say, I've earned it. But showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Do you know what it means to adorn something? To wear it, to let it cover you. So many of us have a doctrine up in our head. Maybe even it's sunk down into your spirit. The doctrine of what you believe and what you know about God. But he says, when you go to work, and you work as unto the lord and you do it for the lord and you're you're letting him shine through you what you're doing is you are wearing what you believe and when you wear what you believe people see what you believe you're wearing the sermon you're wearing the message you're wearing the gospel how do i wear the gospel it's not through christian t-shirts as cool as they might be you wear the gospel by how you go about what everybody else is going about just in their ordinary way, how you do where, what you do where God has placed you, that's how you're wearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're preaching through your action. You're preaching. and hey, you might not think it's that spiritual. I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing what I should be doing. But the way you're doing it is preaching. Then he says this in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. Now, when did the grace of God appear? Through Jesus, right? When Jesus appeared, the grace of God appeared. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. So grace teaches us what to deny and it also teaches us what to hang on to. Isn't that right? The great grace of God will teach you what to not do as well as it'll teach you what to do, right? These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So there's a message to the church, and he says to whoever's preaching it, don't let anybody disregard you. Don't let anybody just walk away and say, Well, I don't really need that for me. That's for them. That's not for me. Don't let anyone disregard you. Here's what you need to know the grace of God appeared. And he he brought salvation to us. And he brought salvation. It's available to everybody. But then he says this. He not only instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, but to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. And then he says this phrase, and it's important, in the present age. Why is it important that he said in the present age? Because the present age is messed up. So many people are looking forward to the sweet by and by when everything will be made right. Praise the Lord, you should. Because the by, it goes on to say in this verse, looking forward to the hope we have. Looking forward to the appearing of Jesus, right? We should look forward to that. But he says that we should live right now in the present twisted perverted age. Which on the day of Pentecost, so many thousand years ago, thousand, well, 1,900 and whatever, do the math. That many years ago, When the gospel was preached in Jerusalem, and many believed, and it didn't just say many believed, but it said all of these were added to their number of them that believed. So that tells us that there's a difference between believing and being added to the number of disciples. There's a lot of people that believe. You know, you could run across people in the streets that say, yeah, I believe there's a God. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but they're not, they haven't allowed themselves to Give their life to Jesus. That's right, that's right, that's right. It says of those that believed, this many were converted and added to their number. And it says here that in this present age, so, or I'll go ahead and finish my thought. So Peter, right after all those people, if 3,000 got saved, he kept exhorting them saying, be saved from this wicked and perverted generation. He's already preached, be saved from hell. But now he's saying, be rescued, be delivered, be snatched out of the fire, be saved from a wicked and perverted generation. How many of you believe that people that are saved need to be saved? You know what I mean by that? You've been saved from hell, praise the Lord. You need to be saved from the world that you've been soaking in. And Jesus is more than happy to do that. Because we've been marinated in a worldview that is not God's worldview. And every time we turn on our favorite shows, and every time we go out and see the billboards, and every time you get around people that are talking a certain way, you've got a choice. Will I let this be my worldview, or will I think like he thinks? be saved from a wicked and perverted generation. And when he said, be saved from a wicked and perverted generation, did he withdraw them and say, we're starting our own utopia? We're starting our own city where we won't have to deal with sinners. No, he didn't. Go to work the next morning. You know, you can be saved from wicked and perverted thinking and worldviews without having to leave the premises. Now, come on, guys. Like, if that's where you're hanging out for fun maybe you need to find a new place to hang out for fun. Yeah. But I'm talking about these places that God strategically has placed you in your workplace, in your, whether it's school or, or, you know, uh, some of you are, are taking care of other people's kids or your kids are going and, and, and socializing. and All of these things. We can be saved from our own generation. And he says, in this present age, as messed up as it is, as twisted as it is, because I don't know if you know about the society as it was in his day. We think all the stuff we're dealing with now is new, but it's not. It's not new. How many of you admire the Spartans? You know, the 300 that stood at Thermopylae? We admire them for that, but do you know what? Everything else they did was really just weird. Gross and messed up. I mean, they would pair a man with a young man and these two would be, spend more time together than that man ever spent with his wife and they would do things together that he should only do with his wife. In order to be part of the Spartan class of men, you had to first just sneak up behind a slave and kill them. That was part of your initiation. There's a lot of messed up stuff there. When Paul was writing this letter, there was a man named Nero in power. You know, Nero was a really promising kid who went way off. One of the great philosophers, Seneca, was his teacher. But then he went way overboard. Something happened. He went wacky. A fire started in Rome. People started blaming him. So he says, who can we blame? They blame the Christians. The great persecution of Rome begins. But Nero did other things. You know, Nero had a couple of different wives at different times, but he also had a nice little private ceremony where he married a little boy dressed up as a girl. It was not uncommon for people to have relationships in every way that they wanted to. Stuff that we don't even want to talk about in this holy place. Not worth mentioning, but let me tell you, what we're dealing with now is not new. It's not new. You have to know that because sometimes we think, oh, God didn't foresee this. God didn't see this coming. Sure he did. The church is not equipped to stand against this stuff. It's as dark as it's ever been. It's been this dark before. Right? Don't be afraid. God's not afraid of the dark. So in this present age, can you live sensibly, righteously, and godly? Sensibly, if you look this up, just means with a sound mind soberly is another way it's put everybody else is just gone nuts can you have your head about you can you say I've got I'm going to live purposefully I'm not going to just be sleepwalking through life I'm not going to be drunk through life I'm going to be purposeful in what God has called me to do can you be purposeful can you be sober in all things and say and sober doesn't mean you don't have joy you can be sober and just full of the Holy Spirit and full of his joy but sober means you got your head about you. You know why you're there. You know what your mission is, and you're not f- afraid to fulfill it. Come on now. Righteously, you're upright. Your integrity's intact when everybody else is cheating. And call it good business. Right? Come on, guys. We got good business practices now that are not good business. It's just lying, stealing, and cheating. Just because it's legal doesn't make it right right? Because the law is not your conscience. The law is not your spirit. The law is not God's law. So here he says you can be sensible, you can be righteous, upright, you can do things as God does things, and godly. Now this word godly may sound like at first it's saying to be like God, and that's true, but this particular word godly means to be reverent toward God, to be worshipful to be someone that worships God with the way you work to be someone that worships God with the way you raise your kids to be somebody that worships God with your conversations from day to day to be someone that worships God at the drive through to be God, someone that worships God at the gas pump to be someone that worships God with every moment of your day yes to be reverent toward God <laughs> reverence toward God come on now do I work with reverence Do I speak with reverence in this present age? And then he says in verse 13 that we should be looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for themselves a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once foolish ourselves. We were disobedient. We were deceived. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We were spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of our God and Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed god will be careful to engage in good deeds these things are good and profitable for all men now you might have heard somebody say that we're not supposed to be careful because didn't jesus say take no care and there's a difference between taking care as in putting care into something and being anxious jesus said don't be anxious right don't worry don't be anxious but you should care about what you're doing. Yeah, that's right. right? When a craftsman is building something and you say he built this chair with care, it speaks of the honor he treated it with, how he had reverence for the job. Now here it says we should be careful. We should go out of our way to engage in good deeds. Now you can let the world define to you what a good deed is. or You can let God define to you what a good deed is. But I believe that good deeds, you know, when we say good deeds, we kind of get in this natural worldly thought pattern where we're just thinking of like, you know, giving money to somebody on the street, which that's part of it, sure. But I I think of this good deeds as good works that God has prepared since before the foundation of time, prepared for you, that you would walk in them. God prepared good works for you to walk in, but you've got to be careful to engage in them. And I think that's the question I want to ask you today. Are you engaging? The question's not whether you are in the right place at the right time. That may be the first question you need to ask. Am I in the right place? But many people are in the right place and they're wondering why things aren't happening. And the answer is, are you engaging where you are? Are you being careful to engage in what God's called you to do? Because it's not just going to happen to you. It's not just going to come upon you. It's not just going to fall on you. You've got to choose. I will engage in my God-given mission right here. I'm going to engage in good works. I'm going to engage in what Christ put me on the planet to do. I'm going to be careful to engage. Let's just watch how many times he's brought this subject up. In verse 7, he's talking about young men. He says in chapter 2, verse 7, In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. He goes on down, and he talks about the grace of God appearing. And in verse 14, he says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Do you know what it means to be zealous? Zealous people are inches from crazy. Zealous people are just a little too obsessed with something. Right? A zealot is somebody that you go, you just care about that a little bit more than, than is normal. Just chill out, bro. I mean, like, you're just a little too into it. He wants us to be zealous, passionate, fiery for good work. To, go. to, go. to be zealous and say, where is it? I mean, he, he is, he's also says that we should be, when he talked about the bond slaves, what did he say? He said that they should be ready. They should be subject to their masters, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, they'll wear their doctrine, they'll wear their beliefs. And then it says that it wants us to be living sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age. And then he wants us to be zealous for every good deed. And then he goes down in chapter 3, in verse two, verse 1, and says that we should be ready for every good deed. And then he goes on and he says we should be careful to engage in these good deeds. Yes, yes, yes. So let's just think of those three things. We should be zealous mm-hmm. for the work that God's put in front of us. Yeah. Zealous for the good work. Ready for the good work. Mm-hmm. And careful to engage in the good work. So I'm going to ask you those three things. Where you are, what's the good work? Where you are, what are the good deeds? What are the good... Don't take Jesus out of the good deeds. Don't think it's just like the world does it. No, God has empowered you to go beyond, right? Yes, to preach the gospel to the poor. To set free those that are oppressed by the devil. To set at liberty those that have been captive... To preach recovery of sight to the blind. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. To break the burden off the oppressed. This is what you've been called to. And sometimes those things are just what the world would see as good works. Sometimes it is a, a charity. Sometimes it is a good deed. Something good. And other times it's something supernatural. I think it all should be supernatural. If you are giving to the Girl guides, let it be supernatural. Amen? But it's got to go beyond all of that. It's got to go beyond what the world can do, what the world thinks is important. Oh, hallelujah! Where you are, are you zealous? Well, first of all, sorry, are you ready for the good work that God's put in front of you? What does it mean to be ready? Well, you've got to be expected. You've got to be ready. As the hockey dads would say, keep your stick on the ice, keep your head up. Because you never know when the puck's going to come across the ice and you've got to do something with it. You're just looking up in the stands, seeing where mom is, wishing you had chips like everybody else has. You're going to miss your chance. <laughs> put your stick on the ice, put your head up, and get ready because God's going to send the puck your way when you might least expect it. But you should be expecting it. Yes. I told you this before, but I used to go to school and I used to pray a prayer that was not... Conducive to my personality. My personality was shy, withdrawn. And I used to pray every morning, God, give me opportunities. And God, for some annoying reason, answers prayers. And he would give me opportunities, right? And I'd always say, why did I pray for opportunities? Because here they are. But once you engage in them, like I said last week, it's like somebody that's dipping their toe in the water and uh, it's cold. But when you jump in, Suddenly, you love how the water is. Suddenly, you can swim. Suddenly, you can realize it's not that bad. In fact, it's good. If you're you're just looking from the outside and you're not engaging, you're just saying, well, if God wants me to do it, he'll, he'll, he'll make a way where it just happens. But you don't realize how many pucks have come right across the face of the goal and you missed it. Now, God is a God of mercy. He'll keep sending them. But don't miss your opportunity now. Be ready. Be zealous. We all know the kid that was zealous for the puck, hey? <laughs> Yelling out, chirping at the other guys, hey, hey, move it, move it. come on. You know, like always wanting someone to pass them the puck. Always looking for an opportunity, always shouldering their way into the, into the area. You know, this is the kind of person that I think God wants us to be zealous, looking for it, eager for it, and then careful to engage. Careful to engage. Because all these opportunities around you, but they won't happen unless you engage in them. You've got to wake up and put on the armor of light. Come on now. Put on Christ. Come on now. The days are evil, but you've got light. The days are dark, but you are light. And if you're careful to engage, I want you to know this, every time you engage, Christ engages with you. Every time you engage, Christ engages with you. I want to read you a story from the book of Acts as we draw near to the end of this for this week. In Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Or sorry, verse 36. Now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha. I think we should pay attention to the wording there. What does he call her? A disciple. Not just a believer, right? But a disciple. Someone who has engaged themselves in following Jesus and doing what Jesus did. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. If I were her, I'd go by Tabitha too. (laughs) This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. You know, maybe for a lot of us, our idea of disciple is to uh, go on the road and just preach in meetings or, uh, you know, you see every act of discipleship is something that has to be done in a certain setting. But for this woman, her discipleship was really shown in her acts of charity that she was always doing. She had died, so that she fell sick and died. And when they, they washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, Don't delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and he went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. So I want you to picture the scene. This woman is dead, but the people that surround her bedside as she's died, the people that are surrounding her deathbed are all these people that she's touched. Who's at her bedside? Widows. Why widows? Because these are the people she's been taking care of. You know, in that society, many of the widows were forsaken. One of the first things that the church really did was begin a program, uh, a process for feeding the widows. The seven, the first seven that were called um, outside of the apostles, the seven that were called to service in the church and put in a position of authority were called to that place simply so that they could make sure everybody was being taken care of. The widows were being taken care of fairly. And to let you know that this wasn't just a good charity organization, those seven, one of the requirements is that they be filled with the Spirit, filled with faith, and filled with wisdom. They didn't just pick good business people because good business would have gone broke. <laughs> they picked people who were full of faith and the Spirit to get it done. Tabitha, I'm assuming, its just my assumption, I'm assuming her job when she started out, when she got born again, her job was making things, right? With her hands. Making clothes, fabrics, whatever. But she began, when she became a believer, she became a disciple. She began to use the gifts that she had, the skills that she had, to take care of the widows in the area. And they show up, When she dies, they're surrounding it, and they're holding up the things that she's made for them. Her work is speaking for her. Her work is preaching the gospel. That is the message they have from her. They're not saying, I remember all the things that she told us. They're saying, look at what she did for us. But Peter sent them all out, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up and calling all the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa and many believed in the Lord and Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. I have a hunch, that's just a hunch, I have a hunch that Tabitha had no idea how many people she had touched until she was raised from the dead and all those people came back in her room. Because it is the nature of people to not really let you know how much you mean to them until you're gone. Right? A moment that haunted me, I stood next to the bed of somebody who was a member of this congregation, a lady that many of you loved. She was hours away from death and I said to her, She was ready to go. She's ready to go. She wanted to go see Jesus. At least that's what she had said. But I said to her, you don't know the effect you've had on me. I said, you've really, God's really used you to have an effect on me. And she looked at me with this look of surprise and said, really? And it broke my heart that it wasn't until this woman was on her bed hours from death that she realized how much she meant to me. And it made me want to tell people more often what they meant to me. But the truth is, you don't know who you're touching. You don't know who you're changing. You don't know who would show up at your funeral and hold up and say, This is what they've done. This is how the gospel was preached to me. The gospel was preached to me when this lady gave me a garment that I couldn't afford. What are you preaching? What are you wearing? Because we're meant to wear the gospel. We're meant to wear Christ himself. Put on Christ. Live sensibly. Live righteously. Live godly. Because the world is meant to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord just as the waters cover the sea. Retail in Lloyd. Schools in Lloyd. Restaurants in Lloyd. Oil fields in Lloyd. Every industry, every area, every social setting is meant to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Some will step in and some will reject it, but do they know the glory of God? If you're wearing the gospel, they'll know it because you're in the room. If you're putting on Christ, they'll know Christ because they know you. Are you ready? for what God's putting across your path? Are you expecting it? Are you zealous for it? Do you want it? And maybe it's okay today if you say, I want it, but I'm also a little frightened. (laughs) I want it, but I'm nervous about this. It's okay to say that as long as you don't let fear rule you. And you say, I'm going to put fear aside and I'm going to have faith in God. He'll calm the nerves. But I found out, and maybe you have too, those nerves persist until you engage. Once you engage, you, you step into it. How many of you have experienced that? Where you, you were so nervous to talk to somebody, and then the minute you did, it was like words were coming out that you couldn't think of. Like, yeah, you know, how where is this coming from? And you feel at peace, all of a sudden you're in it. You're not nervous anymore. Why? Because you engaged. And when you engage, the Spirit of God engaged with you. That's the thing we got to know. When we step out, the Holy Spirit steps out. When we step in, Jesus steps into the situation, right? You got to choose to step into it. You got to choose to step out. You got to choose to engage and know that when I engage, he engages. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. When I get in and say, we're doing this, Jesus says, I'm here. As long as you stand back afraid and say, oh, God, if you want to use me, Lord. Lord, make me do whatever you want me to do. He's not going to do that. He's going to lead you by his spirit. He's going to prod you by his spirit. But you know the apostle Paul, even the apostle Paul was able to kick against the goads of the Holy Spirit. Until finally he got knocked on his, <laughs> he got knocked on his face, knocked on his back, knocked on everything. He got knocked out. And Jesus said, "It's hard for you to kick against the goads." <laughs> I'd rather feel the goads than get so calloused I don't feel it anymore. I pray that today you realize your ministry call, that you would know the hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance in the saints, the surpassing greatness, greatness of his power towards us who believe. That you would know that. Be ready, be zealous, and be careful to engage. Careful doesn't mean cautious. Careful means intentional. Like it matters. It matters that you engage. There's places you're touching I can't touch. There's places you're touching that that person and that person can't touch. You're the one in that situation. You're the one sent. You're the sent one. Amen? Praise God. We expect testimonies. We really do expect testimonies. I've been so encouraged by some of the testimonies we've gotten through this latest question that we've asked, but expect more. You should expect testimonies to come out. I'm not gonna be here the next couple of weeks as I'll be ministering in, well, I'll be here on Father's Day, but next week I'm ministering in another church and the week after that, Brother David McGrew's gonna be here. But after that, three weeks, we're going to pick this up again, and we're going to talk about how the enemy seeks to steal your identity and the call that's on your life. The giftings that God has placed in you, he can't steal these giftings. You know that, right? He can't steal them, but he can get you to give them up. We're going to resist the devil. Submit ourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Amen? For those of you that weren't here on Wednesday, we talked about Paul's message to Timothy that he would not neglect the gift of God within him. Mm. And he would remember the prophetic words spoken over him and by those words he would wage war. Ooh. Some of you, and we, we'll talk about this more, so I don't mean to tease you, but we have, I have to say this right now. Some of you need to engage in warfare. Amen. Because there is already a war being fought for the things God's called you to do. And you need to fight for them. There's gifts in you that you need to fight for. There's prophecy over you. Some of you, it's your kids. Kids raised in the church, get get God speaking to them. True enough. And they go through periods where they might run this way, they might run that way, but the enemy can't steal what God put in them. He can get them to neglect it for a bit, but he can't steal it. If they'd wake up, they'd see it. We need to fight. I don't want to go too far in this because I really do want to talk about this later. We've got to resist the accuser of the brethren. How many of you know the verse, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony? You know that one? Who's him that they overcame? Who's the guy they overcame? The The devil. Do you know in that chapter who he is? In that chapter, he's appeared as a dragon. In that chapter, he's described as the accuser of the brethren. The accuser that was a serpent in the garden has now become a dragon. But they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And I pray that the word of your testimony would be in your mouth, but it'd be all over you. You'd wear it. You'd wear it like your own garment. You'd wear it all around and people couldn't help but see the glory of God all over you. And the goodness of God through you. The love of God as you walk. The righteousness of God as you stay upright. And the reverence for God that you carry with you. Stand with me. Let's pray today.